The ability to speak might not make you intelligent, but we're going to try to prove otherwise. I am one of your hosts of the Clashing Sabers podcast. My name is Brandon, and of course with me I have... Wait, no, I don't have Drew Brett with me. I have Lindsay and Mark. And Lindsay and Mark, go ahead and say hi. Hi, guys. Hi. So I wasn't sure if we were doing a ladies first type thing or not. <laughs> <laughs> All together, harmony. <laughs> One, two, three, hello. Oh, no, just me? Oh, okay. So, Drew, you know Drew's going to say it took two people to fill his shoes, but we all know it really didn't. He stole his thunder. He stole his thunder, exactly. Now now he can't... (laughs) He'll still try. He's going to still try, no doubt. It's Drew. I wouldn't expect any less. So, uh, man... There's so much to talk about, but we're going to be focusing on the series finale of Star Wars Rebels. Uh, If you have listened to our podcast before and when I've had Lindsay and Mark on the show before, you know the three of us are huge Rebels fans. Uh, Drew is the outcast of the group, but (laughs) we're getting him there. Slowly but surely, he is snail mailing the discs to himself via Netflix, and hopefully by 2034, we will have the series (laughs) rewatched. But we are going to be full spoilers all the way in, talking about everything that happened in Star Wars Rebels uh, this past week, with Farewell and Family Reunion as the final episodes, and A Fool's Hope as the episode before that, the penultimate episode, I guess. But we're going to be talking about it all as as one big thing. But before we get into that, there was one other big piece of news that I wanted to talk about, which was the announcement of Jon Favreau as a writer and producer of an upcoming Star Wars television show. Um, Rumors are, of course, that this will be... um, I shouldn't say rumors are. It's been confirmed that this is going to be on the Disney streaming network when that comes out. So uh, that'll definitely be interesting. I am a huge Jon Favreau fan. Like I've been saying since day one that we needed to give this guy a movie in Star Wars. I wanted him to actually have an, an episodic movie. But uh, what, are, what are y'all's thoughts on this? Lindsay, what you, why don't you start? So we'll do ladies first this time. <laughs> I earned it. Um, I am really excited. I think I'm right there with you because I love Jon Favreau. I think he has proven that he can really adapt to a lot of different styles. You know, I think the first Iron Man is probably my all-time favorite Marvel movie. And then, you you know, he did Elf, he did Jungle Book. I think he's proven that any genre he's in, he can really not only dabble in, but really seem like a master of. So on top of that, though, now we have, and we'll get into this with our Rebels discussion, I'm sure, but Disney has really proven that they're okay to take a lot of chances and take on very mature subjects. So to have someone like him who's so adaptable now team up with Disney proving that they're going to market to this more advanced audience, I think is an incredible combination. I can't see wait to see what comes from it. Yeah, one, if you really, in my opinion, you really want to see how good Jon Favreau is just at understanding movies, watch Chef. 
Have you guys seen Chef? I uh, haven't. No, it's one of my Chef. roommates' favorites. It yeah. was. I don't remember if it was Oscar nominated or not, but it was. It was a like indie film that hit really hard uh that he he wrote it he directed it and he produced it and he's the main star in it and it is fantastic like it's about a dad who uh is an aspiring chef and kind of gives up on his hopes of working in a fancy restaurant so that he can start a food truck and it brings him and his i believe it's son uh together but it's just it's emotionally gripping and just it seeps every little ounce of emotion out of you. It's fantastic. So, recommendation if you want to know more about John Favreau, other than just you know the Iron Man and Elf and and things that he's done there. Mark, what about you? What are your opinions on Favreau jumping in here in the Star Wars galaxy? Well, I think that he is a, a really smart choice because he's already part of the Disney family. Um, his Jungle Book is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. And the fact that he's working on The Lion King, The Lion King is one of my most anticipated movies uh, to be coming out in, in the next, I guess it's maybe next year. Or maybe 2019. It's, yeah, it's, it's not, 2019. It's not going to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just, he is a big Star Wars fan. He's, he's, a, he's very excited to work on Star Wars. So he's a great choice. And the fact that he's being... Um, uh, brought in to head up the TV show means that he'll be able to bring a lot of other creative voices onto the team. And yeah, I don't know if we want to go ahead and get into the like the online the Twitter controversy of yeah, about that, hiring him. That's what I was going to bring up next is is see where you guys stand on it. So Mark, take it away. Why don't you you start us off with that? Yeah, what I'd like to just go straight into about that is that um, I know that the optics of it are kind of questionable and kind of, mm, it's kind of the fact that they made the announcement on international women's day was kind of a head scratcher. Um, but the thing that I, I want everyone to remember is that with this being a TV show um, and that it's, it's going to be on the Disney app and it's going to, you know, launch that new service this is going to be a TV show that will be, I think they want to want it to be an incubator for new talent. And we're, we're going to see lots and lots of diverse people brought in as directors and writers. And I think this is going to be uh, sort of like the testing ground for a lot of people to come in as directors who will then move on to the, you know, the bigger pictures, the bigger movies. Um, so I'm actually very excited because I think this opens up a lot of new possibilities for a lot of different people. Yeah, I agree. That's that's kind of the point I had made on on Twitter via the Clashing Sabers uh, Twitter handle that being upset that there's not a a female lead of a series or a movie and being excited about John Favreau are not mutually exclusive things. Like I still really want a female director directing like an Ahsoka movie, for example, or no, I want Filoni directing an Ahsoka movie, but I want a female director, you know, doing like a Ray type character. Um, people of color need to have opportunities in here, especially because Star Wars is a diverse galaxy itself. So behind the camera should represent that. So Lindsay, as our, as a, as a female, and I don't want to make you into the token female, but like what, 
what's your point of view on this? Because you get to come at it from a different angle than us. No, I would actually really have to agree, and I think you said it perfectly, that it's not mutually exclusive. So while, yes, I do really anticipate the day when we do have a female director uh, taking the helm on this, I'm still excited for Jon Favreau. And if you made this announcement on International Women's Day and it was a less qualified man, then I could understand why people would be upset. But the thing is, with with Twitter, people are going to be upset about something no matter what. You could go on and say every single person on Twitter gets $1 million, and I think you would still find people (laughs) who are going to complain about it. But Jon Favreau, you can't take away from everything he's done. He's so incredibly talented and well-versed, and he deserves this. So was it weird that they made the... Announcement on International Women's Day, maybe. I didn't really think much of it, but again, if it was a less qualified man, I could understand why people would take issue. But to me, it's just, you know, it's it's not a big deal. I think eventually we are going to get a very qualified and talented woman directing. It's just not today. Yeah, and I honestly wonder, and this is going to sound terrible, but I honestly wonder if Lucasfilm even knew it was International Women's Day. Like, do did they tweet anything about, like... Because it would be a good day for them to tweet about, you know, the, the great female characters that they have. Um, but I don't remember seeing anything from the official Star Wars handle. So I don't know if they even... If they even knew, like, oh, this yeah, is not the best point. day. I don't, you know, yeah. I don't think that... I don't think they did, that they even knew. I, I think it's a situation where... Because uh, International Women's Day, not not to downplay it or anything, but it is largely a social media holiday. Um, and it just simply may be that they had, because obviously this, this arrangement with Favreau has been in the works for a long, long time. This is not something that they just decided, you know, on the spur of the moment. This has been in the works for a while. And there may have been a reason why it had to be announced exactly when it did. And it just so happens that it, coincided with that day i think people are reading too much into it as as being that it's some kind of nefarious timing on the part of of lucasfilm or disney i do think it's simply an accident that it happened on this day and that it's been something that a lot of people have been complaining about and and concerned about for so long um you know like Lindsay said she made a good point you know it's if it had been anyone else we might you know we might think that this was perhaps a bad choice but Favreau is an incredibly talented guy and he is a Star Wars fan he has been he's dying to do a Star Wars movie he's dying to work with Star Wars and he's been in uh Clone Wars and apparently has a part in the upcoming Solo a Star Wars story so I I think he's been Jabba the Hutt's voice I think that's what I've heard yes okay see I didn't even realize he was in any of it until the announcement um, on StarWars.com, and it says, you know, that he's had other roles in in the galaxy. The thing that, and I'm, I'm hesitant to say anything because I don't want to, I don't want to say something inconsiderate. But, Mark, you made a good point that International Women's Day is pretty much a social media holiday. And if we really wanted to, you know, nitpick, every day is, is some day. Like, there's national talk like a pirate day. Like, you know, it do, I think 
International Women's Day should be more of a holiday. I think we should celebrate the great women in our lives. But until it reaches that status, I think it was pure, pure accident. And and the idea that Lucasfilm and Disney somehow want to undermine women and yet have put females at the lead of all of their major products uh, that have come out since the purchase. I mean, you have Ray, you have Jin, you have Ahsoka as a major feature. You can say that Rebels is Ezra's story, but I think it's just as much Sabine's story as it is his. Um, there's There's been such great handling of female characters. Hera, you know, for example, that I think it's... It, like Lindsay said, it's just a matter of time. Like it's coming. It's probably, if I'm being honest, I probably imagine that it it's already in the works. They just haven't ironed everything out yet about who do we have? What do we want this person to do? You know, what are the parameters? Because there's so many moving parts right now, but they have female authors on the books and the comic books. Like it's not like they're shunning females and it's just a whole bunch of dudes you know, walking around scratching themselves, talking about how cool lightsaber fights are. Like, oh, Lucasfilm is fifty percent the executive, the executive level branch at at Lucasfilm is fifty percent women. So, I was just thinking like, that. Yeah, I mean, so that it's a very strange. I mean, I I absolutely understand the importance of of hiring a woman director. I mean, as soon I walked out of Wonder Woman, I. The first thing I said to my brother was, Patty Jenkins needs to do a Star Wars. I mean, it's really, it's, it's going to happen. I, everyone, it will happen. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's been a point, I feel like, um, recently. Dave Filoni, when he was talking in some of the Final Rebel stuff, was talking about how thankful he is for all the, the people he had behind him. And he made a special mention of some of the women who have played a, a, an essential role in helping develop the female characters uh, in, in Star Wars Rebels. And this leads me to another thing that just has bothered me lately. And if I'm just way out of left field here, like, correct me, but there's been talk lately with the, the end of Rebels, and I don't want to go into that specifically, but with how Sabine's story ends in Rebels, that Dave Filoni has a problem writing female characters. And I, I just don't see it. I mean, I look at Ahsoka, I look at Hera, I look at Sabine, and I just don't, I don't see it. What do you guys think? Lindsay, so what, what are your I thoughts? I think Patty Jenkins actually said this perfectly about Wonder Woman. And this kind of relates to Sabine, where everyone said, you know, you can't put Steve Trevor in the movie. It has to be this strong, independent woman. She, you know doesn't need a guy there by her side, blah, blah, blah. And Patty Jenkins made the point that if it were any male superhero, of course there would be a love interest because that's just part of life. So why should you take that away from a woman just to show that she's strong? You know, if a guy can have someone who he's interested in, why can't a woman? And to me, that's Sabine perfectly. You know, she doesn't start off, she's not pining after Ezra for... The entire time we see these characters, she is this really strong, well-rounded person on her own. So why can't she have that extra layer? That's my thought. You know, I think Patty Jenkins said it absolutely perfectly, and it goes across all female characters. Well, and the idea, I, I feel like sometimes in the effort to promote strong, independent women in in cinema, in TV shows, you like you're saying, Lindsay, that 
kind of idea that they are still human beings who are, interact with other human beings, and sometimes those are going to be male human beings, is lost. And it's like, oh, it can only be, you know, women supporting other women, which we need. Like, I am all for that. Uh, last you do, year, but I did Star it Wars gives us, you know, Star Ex Wars gives it to us. Exactly. And, and there's this dichotomy that starts to happen on social media that, it's like it can either be black or white. There's no there's no gray. You know, it either has to be like yep. a, whole, a whole female cast or a whole male cast so that it's all feminist or all sexist. And we can define them easily in these little boxes that we can type into 280 characters. And I'm sorry, that's just not how life works. And I will till the day I die be supporting females in Star Wars. I mean, I wear a shirt with Rey or Ahsoka on it pretty much every day if it's not a pork shirt. But like... I'm I'm all for that. I'm all for the support, but but I really wish we could our fandom could stop trying to put everything into these little boxes, and and have well, a, you know have an you know what I think discussion. is so funny. Here's what I, here's what I'd say specifically about Sabine. If you look at her character arc, she is supposed to go from this very independent and untrusting young woman. You know, look at the very first few episodes. She doesn't even trust Hera. She slowly grows to trust Hera, trust Zeb. And Ezra is really the final person. So the whole point of Sabine's arc is to go from this total loner who doesn't trust anyone to showing how she became someone who completely trusts and has faith and will do anything for even Ezra. So I think to say that she can't care about Ezra in this certain way totally takes away from all of the character development that she's supposed to have. Yeah, totally. And she she makes the choice herself. It's not like Ezra forces her to stay there. Yep. That would be a totally different situation. She makes the choice completely by herself. And I think in an effort for certain people to have their agenda met, they take these little sound bites, for example, you know, these little moments, one single moment, and they don't take the full story arc, like you were saying, Lindsay. Like, if you just looked at, oh, Sabine stayed on Lothal because of Ezra, yeah, that can be interpreted wrong. But if you look at the fact that, you know, she has been so connected to Lothal, she found this family who accepted her even with her mistakes, the loner that she was into becoming the, the person, the, the strong woman that she was, it changes the, the conversation a lot. Uh, and, and we can't lose that. Otherwise, it's just, you know, picking out moments from the movies and the TV shows that fit your agenda. And it's not an actual conversation about the story. And it's just an argument over who's right and who's wrong in a situation where there is no full right and full wrong. Uh, Mark, I, I kind of interrupted you. What, where do you stand on all this stuff? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I, I agree with with uh, with what Lin Lindsay was saying about Sabine's arc. Because when, when I consider the entire arc of the show, the entire show is about family. And Sabine's arc has been focused so much on the family that she came from, from Mandalore, and how she felt rejected and exiled from that family. And so her coming, into, coming to Lothal and meeting these other people... It, it really was, like Lindsay was saying, a matter of showing how she slowly begins to trust a new family. And for her to stay on Lothal is, is not so much about her choosing or, or, or 
Ezra's fate being tied to hers and her not having her own agency, but more or less, it's really about her deciding that this family that she found was that important to her. So this Lothal became her second home. I, I, I just, I'm kind of perplexed by the idea that anybody wouldn't understand that that was what that, that final scene meant. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, I, I think, again, in my opinion, it just comes back to people wanting to meet their agenda or the story they had made up in their mind. It's the same thing that caught people with The Last Jedi, I think. The story that they made up in their mind are, is not the story that they saw, and so they they felt disenfranchised. Which, I mean, I can understand to an extent. Um, I, I try to go into everything like open-minded. I had my ideas about what was going to happen. Some of them came true, some of them didn't. But I just hope that, uh, you know, through opening up conversations like this and, and talking with people, we can actually start to talk and have a conversation about these things so that we can actually see like real progress that matters and not just everybody being torn down, which it, it feels like Twitter can become sometimes. But, you know, we could we could run on for that forever, and I this is not a negative podcast, and I don't want to take it that direction. So, jumping back into positive things, because there's nothing else to talk about, because what else would we talk about? We're going to talk about Rebels. So, let's start off just, we're, we're going to talk about all of these episodes as one, uh, A Fool's Hope and Farewell and Family Reunion. Just overall impressions, guys. What did you think? Mark, why don't you start this time? What did you think of these three episodes? Well, uh, I know we're going to focus on these three episodes, but kind of talk a little bit about the episodes that led up to these three episodes because they were the most emotionally draining episodes of animation I've ever watched. And I, I was abs- absolutely had my mind blown by the way that uh, how this final arc was being set up. Um, I think everybody, I think a lot of fans were trying to focus on the how of like how was Kanan and how was Ezra going to be removed from this story because we know that they can't be around in the original trilogy so fans a lot of people were watching so I I need to see this happen and I need to see this happen and I think what Filoni and the writing team did was they sort of said that's not what you should really be focusing on and and let's talk about uh, some more trippy things like how the force really works or just how big and mysterious it is. Cause there was some stuff in this, in these final episodes that was just, it was a game changer for how we see the force in this franchise. And I, I was absolutely, I, I think that this show will work the best as, uh, something that you can binge watch episode, you know, one right after the other, because when it was back, when it was being aired and there was like one episode a week and then two episodes a week, uh, I found myself getting pretty frustrated, but when they came back this season and then they showed the two episodes back to back, um, I really felt myself getting into the momentum of the story. And so this final, these final few episodes, I've really, really enjoyed them. I've gotten so much out of them. Um, you know, is it perfect? Did it wrap everything up in a nice little bow? Uh, you know, that's debatable. But for me, I found it to be very, very satisfying. Um, and actually pretty inventive. 
the way it, it wrapped up the story of these people. And it also tied into the larger story with the rebel Alliance and with Palpatine. Um, yeah, I was very, very satisfied with how it wrapped up. Yeah, I, so I was watching it. I get up really early in the morning. I get up at like three. And so I was watching it in the morning when I was drinking my coffee and stuff. Uh, speaking of a world between worlds and uh, wolves in a door. And the whole rest of the day, I was just an emotional wreck. Like I was drained. And people would be like, hey, how are you? And I'm like, honestly, I'm a little messed up about a cartoon show. I know that sounds weird, but it's actually what's happening right now. It was, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it was it was very taxing, but also very exciting to to get that diversity about the Force and and not just what we learned about the Force, but the possibilities it opened up. Lindsay, what are your thoughts on that? So you guys say you were satisfied. I would say I was satisfyingly unsatisfied because I have been prepping for this for, let's see, we found out last April it was ending. So almost a year I've been getting ready for this to end. And over the course of the last season, I sat there every episode and I was like, this is going to be a great finale. They're going to tie everything together. You know, I realized there's probably going to be some loss, but I'm going to be okay with it. And up until I would say the last like 20 minutes of this episode, I was like, okay, I'm going to be sad. I know I'm going to be sad. It's over, but I'm ready for it. And then the last, I would say 10 minutes hit you like boom, boom, boom. And ending credits show up. And I was like, wait, I wasn't done yet. There's still so much story left that I want to hear and I want to be told and I want to say and these characters that I thought were going to have this nice final ending, there's so many possibilities that we can keep going with them. Um, I would say really with the exception of Zeb, I want to know what happens with every other person and every other character. But in, I think, a really good way, you know, it leaves me wanting more. I know we probably won't get a lot more with most of these characters, but... For it to end and me to still want more, I think says so much about this show that I've had a year to get ready for this and I still <laughs> don't feel ready. Okay, so I definitely ship Callus and Zeb. I, I I want I want like a, a, a at home sitcom of hot Zeb going on. We need that. Yeah. Let's make it happen. <laughs> but no, I I think you're absolutely right. And StarWars.com and Dave Filoni both kind of use the analogy when one door closes, another door opens, and I would not be surprised if uh, there is a, a show in, coming soon where these characters uh, come come back into the story. And, and that's kind of, you know, how, honestly... How could they not? How could they not do that? That's, they can't, he can't leave us with that final scene and not, not bring them back. I mean, yeah, exactly. Would, well, Hera's going to be in more. So Hera's been in the Dr. Afra comic now. So we're starting to get her a little bit more post-Rebels. So I think it's going to be kind of sprinkled in other mediums and other series until we get the final, you know, Sabine and Ahsoka buddy cop movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, going back, going back to Favreau, um, we don't know when the TV, the live action TV show takes place, but if it happens between Return of the Jedi and the La and and the Force Awakens, there is a possibility that we could see live action versions of these characters. In that show. 
Because you know that Filoni and Favreau are going to work together on this show, whatever it is, in some capacity. And I think that there's probably going to be more uh, crossover between on television, between animated and live action, than we're, than we're going to see between, say, the animated series and the films. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a possibility. Um, I don't know if they would necessarily take animated characters to live action um if they could if they could still make an animated show just and i say that just because that's such feloni's wheelhouse uh and he loves that type of of production and he created all these characters so if he's still a part of it i feel like he would um get first dibs on the characters basically so as far as like an ahsoka and sabine buddy cop tv show i think that would be more animated but I definitely think there's possibility of them hopping over to a post-Return of the Jedi uh, television show that's live action. I think that could be really compelling. And, and you know, marketing-wise, like, it's a smart idea. You get it, – it's kind of what the CW does with all their shows. Every year they do, like, a one crossover where you have to watch all the superhero shows to get the whole story. And you could definitely do that with Star Wars shows where it's, like – one week you get this ah- Ahsoka on the live action and you have to see it. And then all of a sudden you get more audience for your live action show and vice versa. I hope they do. I hope it's not, I hope they do something like that, but not quite as extreme. I think one of the great things about the way they're setting up the star Wars universe is how accessible it is. So I have, you know, obviously people like us are going to absorb every single thing they put out there and they're going to get all of these connections but then you have people like my sister and she loves the movies but that's it that's where she stops you know she could tell you what order they go in even with the um standalone movies coming out but that's it and then you have my roommate who he watched um twilight of the apprentice with me when it was on and then he was hooked he went back and he watched all of rebels and he loves Rebels, but he doesn't always get the connection between Rebels and Clone Wars. You know, so I think as long as they keep it like that, where people can come in and out as they so choose, and they don't have to watch every single episode of Clone Wars to understand Rebels, then I think we're in a good place to continue to grow the fandom. Well, and that's like, that's the hard part, too. It's like such a delicate balance to, yeah. to handle. So jumping into like the episodes proper, one thing that stood out to me was how reminiscent their whole plan was to Return of the Jedi. Um, the plan to get into the dome and and capture Price and all that stuff. Is it just me or did that feel very Return of the Jedi? Because there were so many moving parts. I've I've seen other people say that, and and I'm I'm kind of curious to hear what you're explanation like describe to me what what similarities you saw because i didn't actually make that connection that's not to say that it's not there uh, it's interesting because i you're not the first person i've heard make that comparison so um remind me what what is it that you saw that that may, that reminded you of return of the jedi so i mean there is the the idea of infiltrating you know the imperials or jabba's palace and 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 that kind of thing and taking it down and and all that but really it was the idea that there's so many moving parts in both plans like the return of the jedi plan 
it's still not 100% clear, like, was Luke plan A? Was he plan C? Like, how does this all fit together? Um, because there were so many moving parts. And that's kind of how I felt with with uh, with this one. There were just, you had, um, you know, the situation with Ryder and capturing Price and having a battle where you're extremely outnumbered, but you still, you know, end up winning. What happens if you don't win? And the the uh, Ugnot getting thrown up onto the roof and, you know, just all these different moving parts. I don't think it was a bad thing. It's not a knock on it in any way. I know some people knock Return of the Jedi uh, the, those first 20 or 30 minutes because of the plan. That's never really bothered me. Um, it actually, to me, shows the arrogance of Luke Skywalker at the beginning of that movie, um, even more so because you know he came up with that plan. And so, to me, it kind of, in the same way, showed not the arrogance of Ezra necessarily, but he was a tad bit overconfident in himself, uh, and, and it led to him being humbled a little bit. And and that, to me, is where I see the connection is there's that idea that the hero just knows he has it all figured out, and then at some point, things don't really go the way you expect. You know, he has Thrawn come in and basically bombard Lothal, and it was a it was a path that he had never considered because he was so full of himself. Yeah, the the plan to have all the stormtroopers come into the dome and then hide out in the dome with all the stormtroopers was not the smartest idea. <laughs> and they even made that joke in the in the episode. Yeah, I don't I don't think they were unaware of the fact that the plan was not a very well thought out plan. Uh that Ezra just was depending too much on, well, we've always won before, so we're going to win again. And I think that seeing Thrawn bombard Lothal and kill citizens and tear apart the city that he grew up in was really humbling for him and led to him learning that final lesson that Kanan was trying to teach him. I think, if anything, it really showed more the desperation because at any point, it seems like any one of the characters would have been fine sacrificing themselves. And they all knew that this was a pretty, you know, hodgepodge plan. And this wasn't the best thing. So to me, it really showed more the absolute desperation than it did anything else. Wasn't a lot of the plan also um, the rest of the ghost crew deciding that they were going to help Ezra? I mean, it wasn't so much Ezra saying, we're going to do this big thing, as much as it was the entire team saying, we're going to do this thing for Ezra. Because it starts with Hera going and meeting Hondo and saying, you know, basically recruiting him into this mission and saying, we're, we're going to help liberate his home planet. Um, I mean, maybe I was misreading it. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but it felt like it was... It was the whole team coming together for this one thing that Ezra had always wanted, which was to free his home planet. I, I think you're right. I think where I may differ a little bit from you is I don't know if they had the plan before they went and got everybody. I think once they got there, Ezra presented the plan to them and they just trusted him because, you know, he had grown so much and shown uh, so much and especially because of you know all the things that he had learned in this show, that they just kind of trusted him to come up with the plan, and their dedication to them was why they were willing to to basically die for him, if that is what it called for. 
but I don't know if they knew the plan beforehand. I don't think it was like a a group effort where they were sitting around the you know the rebels of the round table and like, well, let's do this. No, let's do that. I think it was pretty much like Ezra saying, "Hey, trust me. I know what I'm doing. I know from all the things you've taught me how to do this," because he's kind of that center point of all the knowledge from that crew. You know, he has the the wisdom of Hera and Kanan. He has the bravado of Sabine. He has the toughness to stick through hard times of Zeb. And so I think they they recognize all of that. And and uh, Hondo says it perfectly. You know, I would do anything for that boy. And it really encapsulates how the whole team feels. You know what's so funny, too? We keep talking about how, you know, they trust Ezra. And, of course, they should. He's this culmination of all of them. But in reality, he really he did a lot of picking and choosing with who got what of the plan. So it's still not clear to me, you know, the part when Ryder goes to price and he fake turns himself in and he fake turns the rebels in. Did Sabine really not know that that was part of the plan? So you have Ezra yeah, dissecting was, that part. Yeah. yeah. That was very confusing to me. Cause, and I think it was the way it plays out. It was more for, keeping the audience off balance, then it, the, the internal logic of it didn't quite work because I, I was like you, I was thinking, okay, who knew this and who didn't know this? And are, is she acting? And is he acting? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and I still don't, I went back and I watched it a couple times really just to see that. And I still don't know, but I'm thinking Sabine didn't know it was part of the plan because then you also have Ezra telling um, that kid Mark, a different part of the plan and going to get the space whales and bring them back. So it seems like even though everyone is trusting Ezra, he's not really giving them a lot of reason to trust him because he's telling all of them these different things. And it just so happened to all come together and all work out. But it seems so funny to me that they all put all this trust in Ezra and he's really uh, coming close to screwing them over a couple times. Yeah, and, and in that respect, it is very much like... It, that reminds me of Return of the Jedi and the whole plan to get back Han. It, the whole question of like, okay, so was was everything Luke's plan? Did they did he send the droids in knowing that, they would, that Jabba wouldn't go for the plan and he was going to keep the droids? And then he knew that somehow R2 would get assigned to the sail barge and that's where he'd be when, you know, he would be hiding his lightsaber inside R2. I... Did he know Leia was going to fail and get captured? I mean, there's so many questions about how did all this come together? And I think it was it was somebody, maybe it was Brian Young on Twitter, who said something to the effect of, uh, it was really just, nobody talked about the plan with each other. They all just showed up. <laughs> that's just how it happened. Like, it just happened to work. And that's as good an explanation as any, I guess. Yeah, I know... For sure, when when they were showing Ryder during the battle, I thought he had turned. Uh, when when he was he showed up as a hologram to Price and offered the deal, I was like, oh, okay, this is you know the plan. This is how they're going to bait him in there. And then the battle was so intense, and I was so caught up in it when he was like backing away from Rook, for example, and not firing his blaster. I was like, this son of a gun, he actually is going to turn on these people. Like, what the heck? I did not see this coming. And then the double turn where he's actually, you know, still with them. Did that get you guys at all? Because I heard somebody say recently that, you know, he had to do that because he had to make the Imperials believe he was 
with them. Uh, but I, I, that just flew right over my head when I was first watching it. I, I didn't believe when he first went to Price, I didn't believe him. I thought, well, this is a ruse. This is part of the plan. But then when the attack came and he saw Rook and he exchanged looks and then Ryder stepped back, I went, oh, wait a minute. So maybe this, maybe he is selling them out. So I went back and forth a couple of times. Lindsay, what about you? I kind of thought from the very beginning, you know, this was Ezra's plan. He's going along with this. I don't, it's just one of those tropes that I feel like is so common that you kind of have to do it. So I wasn't really questioning that part so much. Really just the who else knew. So on top of that, I mean, can we just talk for a second about how beautiful the animation of that whole battle was? Like it was, I know for me, it was encapsulating. Like I was all in, I forgot reality for a little bit that it just, it stands up there with, with the film battles for me. They just did such a fantastic job of animating it and they chose to be on the right people at the right time. And at first when, when Sabine took off on the jetpack, I was like, Oh, they're going to overplay the jetpack again. But what they did with her on the jetpack was so cool. Oh, the whole thing was awesome. And I mean, they shot, I love when they shoot it like this, where it, feels like you're watching a live action show. And that's exactly what this was the entire time. I could easily be taken out of the moment and just sit there feeling like I'm watching this live action thing. And it's the same level of emotion because they put the same level of care and detail into it. Yeah. I I had gone back and watched some of the older episodes and just like with the clone wars, if you watch season one, and then you watch the later seasons, the animation improves um, throughout the seasons. And Rebels is no different. Um, the earlier episodes, I think, looked fine. But when I rewatched these last two episodes um, for a second time, God, it was just beautiful. Just the, the, the animation style. The final scene, even. The final scene looked unlike the animation in the entire series. There was something really different about it, about those final scenes. Maybe it was because it was so bright. The colors were much richer. Um, but yeah, it just, uh, the, the animation is just spectacular. And the, like you said, it, you can easily lose yourself and think that you're watching a, a movie because you're invested in these characters. Um, so yeah, I'm, I, don't ever, I don't ever get distracted by the fact that I'm watching a cartoon show because I'm really invested in these in the story. I think going along with it too, not just the animation, but the score to it this season. And I unfortunately oh, don't know quite as much about music as you guys do, and I don't have the ear for it that you guys do. But that's something mm-hmm. every single episode. And I remember I would text you guys the next morning and be like, well, what about the soundtrack? What about the score? It's just, you know, I feel like I'm watching something scored by John Williams. It just captures the emotions perfectly. I feel like they put so much care into the animation and the music just to make it feel like we are getting a final movie, not a final season. Yeah. Kevin Kiner is amazing. And yeah. get him, I want, I get want him, him a movie. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, just there, there's some highlights from, um, uh, can't think of the name of the episode, but it was the Lasat episode where his people are, are going to the, to the, Legend trying to find the their Legend Legends of the Lasat. Yeah. That, that final scene with the music in that final scene is amazing and haunting. Um, the episode, the, uh, uh, world between worlds where Ezra leaves, leaves that, that plane and comes back out and they're having to close the gate. And then that music starts with the piano and that whole sequence where, you know, he's reaching up to touch the painting and the music is swelling and, and the, and the, the painting lights up and there's, and the, everything's collapsing around them. And it's just, it's like, this is a cartoon show. This is the, the level of production and, and the creativity and the music. Um, I just think it's really underrated. Well, and I think, you know, everybody loves John Williams music and I love John Williams music. But one of the things that I think makes John Williams so fantastic is he knows when not to use the music when to have the music up loud, when to have the music down low. Like Hoth, for example. On Hoth, they took the music out when they're when they're in, you know, repairing the Falcon and stuff. And it's those quiet moments that are just perfect so that when you actually have the music, it's not like like a Marvel movie, for instance, where it's just like, okay, there's always music going on in the background kind of thing. And Kevin Kiner has that same knack, in my opinion. Like, he knows when to turn it on, how much to turn it on. And and like you said, Mark, he hits all the right notes. Um, so one of the things that really stood out to me as, we were, as I was watching this show is just, like, all the connections that were made to previous episodes and previous things that were said. Like, I know, Lindsay, you said it left you wanting more, which it left me wanting more, too. But it really did, to me, feel like a series finale. Like, it was the culmination of everything. From, you know, Mart Matten being in there and Ketsu being back and just all the different links that they had. Especially the link with uh, Thrawn at the end, getting attacked by the Pergils, being a reference, or, or Bendu having said oh, that to in Bendu's. the sea. Oh, that was incredible. It was so good. <laughs> so funny story. Yeah. The first night when it first aired, my you know my roommate's so good, and he tried to make it home in time, but he was like, I I'm not gonna ask you to wait. You know, you can watch it as soon as it's on. We can watch it again tomorrow morning. So sure enough, he came home right at that scene, and I throw the TV on pause and I start screaming at. Him him in the front door going just run don't look at the tv don't look at the tv so he runs into his room and he stayed there until i gave him the okay and then the next day we're watching it and i pause it right at that moment and sure enough it is right when the arms are choking thrawn and i pause it and i go anthony this is what you walked into the door to and this is why i was screaming like a lunatic don't look because it would have ruined everything like there was not a worst possible moment you could have walked in on and he just starts cracking up he's like no i appreciate that trust me <laughs> yeah it's just it was it's beautiful storytelling um it, it's but just it, you're it's it ties together perfectly and what i was amazed at is the fact that they were able to get all these characters you know they were able to get wolf and gregor and hondu and just every single character in 
what felt like a very natural way. I never could have imagined having all these characters share the screen and working together without it feeling completely forced. And it just, it didn't. It felt very natural and I understood why they were all there and they all had good reason to be. Yeah, Hondo maybe a little bit, but other than that, yeah, I agree completely. Yeah, one of one of the criticisms that the show has gotten is people who who believe that a lot of the episodes were filler, and it's funny to me because it's it's almost as if every filler or you know episode that people labeled filler, it's like Filoni went in and said, eh, okay, I'm going to connect it here, and I'm going to bring the Purgles back, and we're going to see Zago again, and. I'm going to make it all come together in the end so that you will see there's no such thing as filler in this show. And it really is, because now you go back and watch it and you know that these people are going to play a role in the way that this show wraps up. So there there was no filler anywhere in this series. Well, and it's funny because I heard Filoni say that uh, the episodes that some people consider filler are some of his favorite episodes. And... Just knowing Filoni, you know, from interviews and stuff, just his characteristics and how he he enjoys kind of messing with the fans a little bit. I feel like he was sitting back watching people react to those shows going, ha, 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 you have no idea what I have planned for you. Like, it just <laughs> I feel like that's Filoni just through and through. And oh, I, yeah, I think I think when especially with Ahsoka, like the Ahsoka Vader, like the Twilight the Apprentice, he was loving that because I was guilty of, of, I was one of those people who, when that ended, I was like, oh, I feel like I didn't really get an answer to what happened to Ahsoka. I feel like they kind of cop, I got, it was sort of a cop out. Um, And the fact that this was always planned, that the reason it was so ambiguous was because Ezra was going to save her. And we just didn't know that yet. Uh, it just, it blows my mind to think that he See, was that I was on, else. I was on the opposite end of the spectrum. And Ahsoka is my favorite. I, you know, I got the big tattoo on my back of her to prove it. But when I thought she died in Twilight of the Apprentice, I was like, you know what? I'm okay with it. That is a very worthwhile death. It ended really well for her. That makes sense to me. And then when people started in with Ahsoka Lives, I was the one sitting here being like, guys, that's stupid. Of course she doesn't live. Her story's wrapped up. It doesn't need to go on. And then sure enough, now that she's back, I'm like, wait, no, okay, it absolutely does need to go on. So I'm happy that they brought her back in a way that, one, makes sense to the rest of the story. And two, it's going to continue to drive the story forward. I put out this article uh, this this past week, I think on on the website about my theory about ahsoka and i ran it by the two of you because i was kind of mm, is this too out of left field and i wrote it right after world between worlds and th- my theory is and i think it still holds up pretty well with the end of rebels that ahsoka was was the light in the darkness for anakin that kind of kept that glimmer of hope alive and by staying on Malachor, she was fighting back that darkness. And so after the fall of the Empire, she was able to leave safely because Luke was, had fully realized himself. Um, I don't know if she knew, like, directly, like, that's what I'm doing. But I that's feel like... A, that's a really good... I like that theory. And I, I thought about your article when I, when I, we saw the episode because the first thing that I thought was, well, 
why has she been on Malachor this whole time? And it makes sense that if, you know, given your explanation that if that was her purpose to stay there, um, because of her, her ability to somehow be the light in the dark side somehow, um, that's, that's a nice explanation. I like it. No, you know, as, as long as she comes back for a reason, you know, I don't like the kind of shows where it's like, you can never die. And, um, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example, like lost, you know, you could always bring a character back on Lost. and for star Wars to go down that path, I think is really tricky. But as long as they do it for a good reason and they do it sparingly, I'm totally cool with them starting to bring characters back from the dead. And, you know, like you said, she hasn't just been on Malachor and she's going to do something now and she's going to do something for a reason, both plot wise and both thematically. So I'm totally here for it. I'm really excited to see where they go. Yeah. And I think it's important, like, the co- the conversation has obviously gone to, like, Ahsoka and Luke together, and I want to see that in some way, shape, or form, but I don't think Ahsoka is going to help train Luke how to be a Jedi. Like, the Jedi failed her, just like they failed Anakin, and eventually they failed Luke, or Luke failed as a, a Jedi, but the idea that she's yeah. somehow going to step up and be, like, his great master... It's it's ridiculous. We've seen it in Rebels. She says, I am no Jedi multiple times. No, but you know what would make a lot of sense? After seeing The Last Jedi, if and now, you know, after reading the novelization and seeing why he's so steadfast on destroying the Jedi, it would make I, a lot of sense for me to for him to have hooked up with Ahsoka at some point and hear her story about the Jedi Order and him start to understand how they were flawed. You know, because up until now, Luke knows the Jedi as only good and these incredible mythological, you know, soldiers of the Force. So what is it or who is it that put the idea in his head that this was a very flawed system? It makes sense that it would be Ahsoka. No, I absolutely agree. Like him having the conversation with Rey about Darth Sidious and turning the Republic into the Empire and the failure of the Jedi, like, that's all stuff Ahsoka was right there for. So she definitely could have been the one who bestowed that knowledge on him. Yeah, yeah, that works out very well. So, moving on to, like, other things that I just thought were awesome, and you guys jump in here if there's stuff that I'm missing you want to talk about. I would just like to say that the scene at the very beginning with Hera touching her stomach while Ezra is talking to the picture of his family gets me every time. Every time. Now, yeah. At the beginning, I was like, oh, maybe, but, you know, Disney, Star Wars. But now it's just like, oh, this hurts. Why are you doing this to me? And, you know, there's been a lot of people, like, discussing the whole Kanan-Hera relationship and, you know, how does this happen when they just got together? I think they were always, like, together, but they just never said, I yeah, love they you, were all... to each other. Yeah. Exactly. Like, oh, like, totally. I think, in, I think it got lost, the idea that, like, saying I love you to someone is a really big deal, especially in the Star Wars. Like, come on, Han Solo and Princess Leia. Like, it's a big deal. It took two movies for them to say it to each other. So the fact that Kanan and Hera, you know, say it to each other. But, yeah, no. Okay, so we all come down same way. They were together. They were space married yeah, forever. And, and- I think so. 
Yeah, and if you go back and, and you and you watch some of the older episodes, some of their conversations that Kanan and Hera are having, there's a lot of hints about. I mean, a lot of their discussions are sort of in the vein of Kanan saying, you know, there's really not time for you and I. Your focus is on the rebellion. I mean, he, they had that conversation several times, and um, I think it's pretty obvious that what they were discussing was like, are we a couple? Like, you know, they were already together. They just, she had never actually said the words to him that she loved him. Um, also, there was somebody else brought up the, the idea of she expressed her regret for having not said, said that to him before she did. Was she referring to, I love you, or was she referring to the fact that she knew she was pregnant? Oh, and I think that kind was- of made- I think it was a pregnancy, for sure. Looking back on I it think, now, yeah, that's. I want to go back though and watch Jedi Knight and watch rewatch Kanan's last few moments with especially Hera, because I feel like he might have known, and I think that's why he was so quick to sacrifice himself because he knew he wasn't just saving his family; he was saving his unborn kid. Oh, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah, and he would have known that. I think he would have known that. I think he could have sensed it, yeah. Like, yeah, maybe he sensed it, but she hadn't really said anything to him yet. Right. And that was the... Because, you know, Kanan, even in season three, I think he would have tried to push back the fire, but I also think he would have tried to push it back while jumping onto the ship. So, you know, you have that character growth there, and then it just becomes even more tragic because come on, the the part with the eyes, like, and he gets to see one more time, and he, Dave Filoni, what are you doing to me? I'm I'm a mess over these episodes, guys. It's ridiculous. Uh, okay, so we've been talking about like you know how they pull the different characters in and and things like that, and and the tenets of the story and how well they hold up. There's one thing that like has really bothered me, and I want to hear what you guys think on it, and maybe it can stop bothering me. So. Throughout this whole series, we've seen Ezra as, like, the guru at communicating with other living beings. You know, other animals, for lack of a better term. And he sends Matt Mar- or Mart Matten to go get the Pergils. Like, how does he know how to communicate with the Pergils to tell them what's up? Like, that, I don't know. It, it bothers me. It, I know it's petty, but it really bothers me. No, I actually had the same thought, you know, and... As the Game of Thrones fan in me, I always say that if you're going to break a rule, you have to do it early and you have to do it consistently. So if they had shown, I think in earlier seasons, that Ezra could do this from so far away or without being in the same vicinity as these creatures, I would have been like, yeah, but they planted this seed early on. But because this was just so random. Wasn't it? What didn't didn't they didn't? They were transmitting a, a frequency, right, from the ship in order that, to call the pergils. No, that was the um, the little stingray-looking things from season one when they were going to, to rescue Luminara. The pergils were the ones that Hera was trying to get away from, and Ezra was no, the well, one who yeah, yeah. But I think that when when mart was on the ship did he not say ezra's given me this assignment and we or we have to we have to transmit on a frequency frequency zero 
Does that not ring yeah, a bell? Yeah, and they said no one uses that frequency anymore. And yeah. Like, oh, I totally missed that one. Totally. Yeah. So I don't think it was. I don't think it was Ezra communicating across space and time to the whales. I think. I think it was more Ezra had created this signal that he knew that the whales would would perceive or pick up on because low frequency uh, whales can well whales they're not whales they're purgles but um in space our whales. world right space whales would be able to pick up very low frequencies so That's maybe well, he, he all right that i that i'm okay with then yeah. and yeah no i like that explanation and it kind of touches on what Lindsay was talking about earlier. Like if they planted the seed early and they did plant the seed pretty early in season one in that episode I was talking about, which brings up a couple other things. I think like we've been talking about, they planted seeds throughout the whole series that just culminated to this episode. The part with the vent that used to annoy the crap out of me. I hated when Ezra was crawling in the vents because I, it just was like, oh, okay, there's the easy out. He's the he's the kid who can crawl in the vent and get away from everything, and they're not going to hit him because they're stormtroopers. It just felt convenient to me. But, man, the way that they did that with Sabine creating the distraction and Hera turning around, and then he's just gone after she's just lost Kanan. Her family seems to be falling apart. It just, I thought it worked fantastic. Fantastically, yeah. I guess. It, it was kind of, it was heartbreaking. It really was. And, you know, Jonah Marie Macias made a really good point about this. She's like the biggest Ezra fan in the world. Um, and she made the point that like season one Ezra, season two Ezra, season three Ezra doesn't do that. There's just no way he does that. And, and it shows the not just the change, but the revolutionary change that he's gone through. Oh yeah. Yeah. Ezra's Ezra's he was and I know that Brandon, you feel this way about Ezra. He's not my favorite character on the show. Um but I think because I was expecting him to be written out of the, the story, either he would die or get trapped somewhere or frozen in carbonite, I don't know. But because that was what I was expecting and I did not expect it to end with him probably being alive, which I think Filoni has has confirmed that he's Filoni has confirmed. Alive. Yeah. Him and Thrawn yeah. are alive. Which I wanted to ask you guys about, like, how... Not how do you think he's alive. That's not the way to state it. But where do you think he's at? What do you think is going on with Ezra and Thrawn? Ooh. Well, yeah. If you've been keeping up with any of the, um, like, the Thrawn book, there's... If you understand where Thrawn is from... Um, he comes from the unknown re- unknown regions, and the reason that he sides with the Empire is because there's a threat in that part of space that that's going to threaten his people. The Chiss ascendancy are are in danger, and so by him coming into this part of the galaxy and aligning himself with what he perceives to be the most powerful um, uh, side, which is the Empire, he thinks that's going to help his people. Um, so there's a lot, there's been a lot of groundwork that they're laying for this idea that at some point he's going to return to, to the Chiss ascendancy and, and maybe face this threat with, with somebody from this, you know, this part of the galaxy. So I think it's possible that maybe Ezra and he end up in that part of space. Maybe that's where their story leads. Um, 
but they really could be anywhere, honestly. If that is the case, Mark, do you think that at this point they would be working together and Thrawn could explain to Ezra, you know, this other threat that's coming in and maybe now that they're not with the Empire, Ezra is suddenly the strongest ally and Thrawn's going to do whatever it takes to get him on that side and Ezra starts to help the Chiss Ascendancy, believing that if he does that, they'll come back and join the Rebellion. See, that's what I would prefer because the the Thrawn of the book is a lot more nuanced than the Thrawn that we got in the TV series. Because the version that we see in the TV series is really much more of the, the black and white kind of villain. But in the book, he was really described as being a much more nuanced character. Um, I'm not going to say necessarily gray, but you could sort of understand where he was coming from. And he did sort he does sort of have an honor system, a kind of strange honor system. Um, but he is at times relatable. Um, and I didn't really get that version of Thrawn in, in Rebels. And that's the version that I wanted to see. So if that were where they where Filoni wants to go with that character, I'm all on board with that. Yeah, it's funny because Thrawn, I know, I you know, and I'm certainly one of these people, but most people were so excited to get Thrawn in Rebels. And I think he was one of the more forgettable aspects of this show overall. You know, when I think back on what the best parts of the past four years have been, Thrawn does not make my top five list. I don't even know if he would make my top 10. But the book Thrawn was incredible. And I'm expecting, you know, something equal in caliber from Thrawn Alliances. Uh, But I'm totally right there with you. But I would love to see how him and Ezra interact when it's just the two of them. Yeah, I I think you're definitely right, Lindsay. He, I think his character just plays better in a book because... you know, Mark, you talked about the the honor system and things like that. And I kind of see that a little bit with Hera and his interactions with her. Like, he has a grudging respect for her and her ability. Um, but I, th- I think his character just plays better in a book because you have more room to, you know, you can cover years and years and you have that time to spend as he's thinking through his plan and as he's making his revelations that you just, you don't have in a 22-minute episode. I have this crazy theory, and it's probably definitely not true, that, so, I feel like they've been making us see that hyperspace is more dimensional, and not necessarily traveling faster than the speed of light, but, like, traveling through a dimension from one place to another, and I have a feeling that Ezra and Thrawn are caught in, like, a almost a world-between-worlds purgatory-type situation. Uh, I don't know why. I just... I think that would make sense for, you know, why Luke is the last of the Jedi and things like that. Um, Because, you know, Yoda's interacted with Ezra, and so I feel like he would know if Ezra's still alive. But if he's caught between this world-between-worlds, it's outside of time and space. And so, you know, he wouldn't be able to sense him. That's what... Yeah, when he actually first entered the world between worlds that's what i initially thought that's exactly what was going to happen i thought we were witnessing oh this is where he's going to end up like this he's going to get stuck here um so i was surprised when he made it out but um yeah i I like i kind of see what you're saying about the the hyperspace uh they're sort of leaving little clues here and there about 
that hyperspace is there's more to it than just getting from point A to point B. In my opinion, there's really no reason for a world between worlds unless he ends up there. Like he could have learned that lesson. They could have had him learn the lesson about, you know, Kanan's sacrifice without going into the world between worlds, without messing with Ahsoka. And you could still have Ahsoka show up at the end of of the series. You know, that that moment with the two of them, the only difference maybe is, you know, you find a different way to bring Palpatine into it, but I don't think that's hard. Um, if you're going to mess with the Force in that way, and Felonia said, like, this is something that was created fully for Rebels, but Star Wars is a connected galaxy, so it's not only for Rebels. You know, it's going to impact the rest of the story, and so I feel like it has to have some bigger role. I mean, one of the things, too, Felonia always talks about is what's the point of telling this story? You know, he doesn't, he's not a sci-fi guy. He cares so much more about the fantasy elements. And I think having, you know, like you're saying, the hyperspace be connecting, um, you know, connecting different dimensions, that goes along so much more with the fantasy element of it. And that's, I think, what he's more interested in exploring is how does point A really relate to point B? And not not just how do we get there, but how do these two things affect and influence each other? It makes sense for the hyperspace to really be more about dimensions because Filoni is such a fantasy guy. He's not a sci-fi guy. He's not worried about how do you get from point A to point B. He's more worried about how do point A and B interact and influence and affect each other. So, you know, thematically, it totally makes sense that that's what Filoni would be going for, and that's the story he wants to tell. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he thinks of, of that place as being a, pl- a place with portals that allow you to travel through time. Um, it's like you said, Lindsay, it's, it, he's focused more on the fantasy elements of it. And the fact that there's so much um, emphasis placed on animals in the natural world in in these TV series, which goes way back even to uh, the Clone Wars with the the Convors, um, I think he's also saying something about the nature of the Force and how the natural world sort of works within the Force. Um, I, for instance, I the whole thing with the Wolf using Ca- uh, Caleb Doom's name. Um, I don't see that as so much being that Kanan came back as a wolf, but that maybe Kanan and and maybe in the animal kingdom or the spiritual realm, this wolf always represented Kanan, like even when he was alive. Uh, Maybe some of the same ways that we see a connection between Ahsoka and the Convors, um, that living people have these connections to these these animals almost like uh the spirit guides or the animal is like an avatar um but there's all these really trippy ideas that that he's he's he loves to go down these you know roadways of of weirdness and fantasy that he's not as concerned with you know the spaceships and and the gun and and the lightsabers he's more interested in the mythological uh storytelling aspects well i think what you said definitely makes sense because yes as far as kanan and the wolf because in a certain point of view the the story we get with qui-gon and obi-wan 
it starts out with Qui-Gon. It, it's not like he's an angel per se, you know, who's just walking around in the force. His, his being kind of comes together around this idea and then this name and then eventually, you know, the need to meet with Obi-Wan. So it's like he is literally one with the force. There's not just, you know, Qui-Gon Jinn walking around in this, you know, on top of clouds in the force. And so I think that kind of lends credence to the idea that Kanan not necessarily came back as the wolf, but his essence influenced the wolf in some way. That part of him that helps build the force is not necessarily like took over the wolf, but like influenced him uh, to be that guide for Kanan to learn those final lessons. Because I don't, I, I I don't say... think... Go ahead. I would say maybe it's possible that the Lothwolves can kind of tap into the force, you know, not only the will of the force, but the will of the people who can um, influence the force in some way. So maybe it's possible that the Lothwolves understood what Kanan was trying to do, and then when they sensed that he had died, felt the need to take over and continue to carry out that will because that's what the force needed to be done. Yeah. No, that, that totally yeah. makes sense. Uh, one other thing I wanted to touch on, because otherwise we're going to get caught in the force like Kanan. Um, wh- what did y'all think about Palpatine coming in? Let's just talk about it overall, coming into Rebels and what he did over these last, I guess, four episodes. Well, it it, it was interesting because I, I made note of the fact that um, with this story... Um, this story development using the way they used Palpatine. We've now seen Palpatine um, using someone's family against them. And we've seen it three times. The first time it obviously worked because that's how Anakin fell and how he got Darth Vader. Um, He tried it with Ezra and it failed. And I think that's very interesting uh, because he was trying to do essentially the same thing, which was using someone's connection to their family or their love for the family as as a weakness, and it ended up, you know, it, it backfired, um, and he didn't learn his lesson because then he goes and does the very same thing when it's Luke, and we all, we know how that ended. Uh, so I like the fact that the Emperor being brought into the story it was consistent with his character, uh, the way that he sees. Um, uh, the opportunity to manipulate people. I mean, he's very consistent in that respect. Well, and he um, sees attachment as a weakness. Right. I think that right. that's a critical point because no, I, I made note of the same thing, um, how he, he really did use a similar strategy with Anakin and Ezra, but even though he does use the attachment with Luke, it's, it's different. Like with Anakin and Ezra, he offers them peace. He offers them serenity and and good things, or at least what are perceived by them as good things. With Luke, he kind of turns that and he offers power and being able to overcome weakness and stuff. And I I think that what happened with Ezra definitely impacted how he used that particular strategy. I would say, too, one of the other, because these are all great, ways to describe the dark side of the force and some of the drawbacks of using the dark side. 
another one is the total hubris because you'll notice he never leaves room for error. He is always so convinced that his plan is going to turn out the exact way and he's going to be able to manipulate these people so perfectly. He leaves zero room for if they decide to make some other decision. He just assumes it's all going to go the way he planned. No, that's that's a really good point. And, and when things don't go the way he plans, he tends not to win the day. You know, he didn't win the day with Ezra. He doesn't win the day with Luke. What I what I really loved is when when you bring in a character like a Vader or a Palpatine, and Felonius touched on this, you have to be very careful because you can't have them lose every week. You really can't even have them lose in a major fashion. Otherwise, they just become mustache-twirling villains, and, and that makes them weak because it's not what they're designed to be. You know, that's what a Grievous is designed to be, not a Vader or a Palpatine. And I think they did such a good job of keeping him, like, actually terrifying. The the part with the hologram where it's switching back and forth is the stuff oh, of nightmares. so creepy. Oh, and you know what God. I really liked about that, too? So in all of the books, you know, like Lost Stars, um, even in Thrawn they do it, in the Ahsoka novel they mention this, they all talk about how when Palpatine does a broadcast – he makes himself seem younger and he takes on this disguise. Yes. And I never yes. really yeah. could picture yeah. it or understood what they meant. So now to be able to really envision it the way they intended, I love. I always figured they were just animating like old images of him um, and, and almost digitally, you know, like they would for, for CGI. But this seemed like something just next level uh manipulation which you know fits perfectly with palpatine did you guys catch the the last jedi links that were in that part of the story i don't think so not okay not so me. and and i may be pulling at strings here but i felt like when the the royal guards came in which was fantastic it definitely was similar to what we saw with the praetorians in there yeah. but also when they lift up ezra and he leans his head back that's very much what Snoke does to Rey. Uh, I don't know oh. if it was just completely coincidental or Filoni was like, oh, that, that actually looks really cool and makes the bad guys look really powerful or what, but it seemed like I a would say nod it's intentional. That. Knowing knowing Filoni and knowing the, yeah. story, the story group, I would say it's intentional. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention about the Emperor being in this, in this uh, series, what I liked about the way that they used him um, cause like Brandon, what you were saying is that you have to be very careful when you bring in a villain of that caliber, because then if he just sort of comes in as a cameo, then sort of what's the point. And then, but then if you have his role, have more of an impact on the story, then suddenly it's because we know that there are other things that happen later. We're, we're wondering, well, if this was so important, why did we never hear about it? And I think the way that they brought him in was really, really ingenious because it it's obvious that his focus was on Ezra and on Canaan and their abilities to to give him this thing that he wanted, which was access to the world between worlds. That was where his focus was. And this happens right before uh, Scarif and the, and the destruction of the Death Star. So he... Like you were saying, Lindsay, he always thinks that he's got everything figured out. I think this was his plan A. 
and it didn't happen the way that he he foresaw it happening and suddenly he gets distracted by this other thing which was his plan b and that didn't go as as he planned because he could not anticipate luke skywalker so yeah, i think it's the sure. way that it sets up how how his focus was on ezra it gives ezra's existence i think a lot more importance whereas i sort of wrote him off a little bit being well you know they have to have this series and they have to have somebody that's kind of a jedi and he's he's got a certain appeal but they're going to get rid of him at some point because he doesn't play a, a role in the original trilogy um now his existence actually feels like it carries more weight in the overall story because the emperor knew who he was and he he was distracted from what was happening. And then suddenly he's not thinking about Ezra anymore because he has, you know, other things to, to worry about with the destruction of the Death Star and and uh, and a new Skywalker running well, around the universe. In Tarkin, pretty much everything we see of Palpatine is him trying to separate himself from the having to run the everyday bits and pieces of the empire to focus more on gaining more power in the dark side. And there's the thread that's running throughout a lot of the novels that there's something, you know, that most of us assume is Snoke out in wild space that, you know, he's hunting for. And so, like you said, Mark, the, the fact that Ezra garners his attention says a lot. And the timing was impeccable because you know, Ezra and the rebels liberated Lothal. And then, yeah, like you said, next thing that happens is Scarif. And then next thing you know, there's another Skywalker. So it was explained in a way that made it completely believable that after, you know, all the basically production that could have happened on Lothal was done after the Jedi Temple disappeared, Palpatine was just like, whatever, it's a bunch of backwood hillbillies. Like, we don't have to worry about it. Uh, and... You know, we obviously know it's different, but I think it I think it makes sense for for the story that Lothal is, you know, in a way free. I, I imagine they're still part of, you know, the Empire and stuff like that, but they have that liberation because of you know, almost the will of the force. Yeah, it was nice that that we we ended up getting a happy ending for Lothal, which I totally didn't expect. Oh yeah, and it makes sense. It totally makes sense. It's a very elegant explanation for why they could have a happy ending. And and I wasn't rolling eyes or going, well, that doesn't fit. Um, I just I just thought it was really brilliant the way he tied everything up. It fit. It felt made natural. it fit within. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so I'm going to nitpick one more thing because I have this on my notes and it just, I don't know why it bothers me, but it does. How the hell does Rex still have to answer to Ezra? Like, I know Ezra's like a quote unquote Jedi. For some reason, I still can't see him as a Jedi. I, I don't know what it is. I see him as a force user and I respect his journey and everything like that. I don't know. He just doesn't, which, which bothers me even more because his last act was so Jedi-like. But I just don't understand how Rex has not risen in the ranks a little bit more. Like, come on, get this guy a promotion. He doesn't have to answer to Ezra anymore. You know, I what think it's really line? voluntary, though, because, figure, if you think about it as Rex, 
he spent his whole life trying to, you know, or he fought with the Jedi Order, watched it crumble. There was nothing he could do about it. I think he was just so eager to have a Jedi in his life again, where he felt like things were back to normal. I would say it's probably voluntary on his part. Yeah, that's, that's a good explanation. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought about it from that direction. So we're like already an hour and a half into this, and I feel like we haven't even cracked the surface. There's so much meat in here, but let's go ahead and jump into the epilogue. Um, I'm thinking let's go into to each character and how their story ended, and just talk a little bit about that. So starting out with the the simplest of of answers, Zeb and Callus. I just First of all, I called Zeb going back to the Lasad. I thought that was a great uh, explanation. There was literally no reason to have such a great character die. But to have Callus go back with him and not just go live there, but to, to see him get accepted and for those people to forgive him for basically committing genocide um, is is such a, a great picture of what the star wars story has always been about i would actually argue i think that was my least favorite of the character endings it just seemed too easy you know like he said he basically committed genocide i know he didn't succeed but he tried to and granted we know he felt bad about it but they didn't know that. To me, that just felt really kind of wishy-washy and like they were writing off a very cutesy ending. Yeah, I think I'm with Lindsay. Um, I wanted to like that ending because I like the, the characters a lot. And I like the fact that they have this, this adversarial history. But you can't say something like genocide and have it just be wrapped up with a nice tidy bow and a happy ending. I mean, I, I know this is star Wars and I know that, that it's really painted in a very broad in broad strokes, but like Lindsay said, it was just a little too convenient that it was, they would just sort of accept him in and Oh, everything's forgiven. Yeah. Come be one of us. I think if there hadn't been genocide in the past, if it had just been a conflict between the two, you know, his his people and and Zeb's people, and they'd been enemies, um, it would have been it wouldn't have bothered me quite as much. But um, I like like again, I like the idea of it. And ever since I saw the episode, the honorable ones where they were stranded together, I knew that that was where their arc was going to go. It, it sort of was painting the direction, you know, that's where the the direction was going. Well, and, okay, so my counter-argument to that is hashtag Darth Vader. Like, <laughs> Darth Vader kills a bunch of kids and gets redemption. Yeah, point, yeah, point. So, you know, it, it's it's definitely murky water. I think what sold it for me was earlier in the episode when Callus was walking Price, uh, you know, after she had been arrested by the rebels. And she goes, you know, you had a promising career, you were going to do things. And he said, the day I betrayed the Empire is the day I stopped betraying myself. To me, that really said, like, what he did uh, to the Lasat people was not his his true self. In the same sense that, you know, everything that Anakin did under the guise of Darth Vader was not the true Anakin Skywalker. So that's that's the perspective I look at it from. Yeah, it's yeah I mean, Callus Cal- is definitely one of my favorites because of that exact arc and the way he carries it out. 
you know, for me, I just wish it wasn't that, you know, one sentence and they all lived happily ever after type of vibe to it. No, I get that for sure. So we also have Ezra and Thrawn. Um, I think we've touched on ah. that enough. Uh, we pretty much all agree. Good ending for those characters. Or pause for, sure. for those characters, I guess. For sure. Nice possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. So... All right, so now we got to jump to Hera, and I already have goosebumps on my arms. The end for Hera. So it was kind of hard for me watching the end of the series because Hera is my favorite of the characters, and knowing that she survived, I was kind of like, eh, if everybody else goes, it's okay because Hera's going to live. But I did not expect the ending that they gave her, just the the fact that she's still you know fighting the good fight even though she's a mom. I, I think that's a an important role model to have out there for young girls, uh, even more so than Hera already was. And just seeing her flying with the little kid in Kanan's seat, it, it was, to me, it was magical. What did you guys think about Hera's clothes? I really liked it. And I would actually change some of your verbiage. You know, when you say she's fighting the good fight, even though she's a mom, I would think Hera would say she fights the good fight because she's a mom. Yeah, that's that's more with that definitely what I was going for. Yeah, for sure. I've always loved Hera. Um, she she's the heart of that family. She's the heart of the Ghost Crew. Um, and I think what they did with her in the final episodes, where we saw because she she was sort of the pillar of strength, but we we actually got to see her uh, broken at one point. Um, and I think that always makes a character so much more interesting when we actually see them struggling. And um, as strong as she was, we we got to see her struggle with that at some point, and she pulled herself back. And uh, just you know, the way that it ended with with her, um, you know, f- flying in that cockpit, uh, doing the thing that she loves, um, I think that just really wraps up that character really nicely. Um, yeah. I would love yeah. to see her again, but it, but if I never saw Hera again, I, unlike with say Ezra and and Ahsoka, where I I want to know where they end up or where they've gone, um, I think Hera's journey is complete to me. Uh, I would love to see her again, but if this was the last time that I saw Hera, I would be very very satisfied with with her journey throughout this show. Well, I think they they could potentially do with her what they did with Iden Versio in Resurrection and kind of have you know, one last mission where she more or less passes the torch to to Jason's and which, by the way, that was awesome. <laughs> I don't yeah, know if Filoni was trying to troll people. Great nod there. Uh, so hopefully that's not an indication of where that young man's future is going. The only thing I would have changed about Hera's ending, and I literally just thought of this, and I'm like, oh, man, that would have been really cool. Which, you know, of course, it's easy to sit back and Monday morning quarterback this stuff. But I think it would have been really cool if we had seen her Calaquari on like the dashboard of the ghost and there were a few more pieces on it for Jason and Sabine and Ezra mm-hmm. and Zeb. I think that could have been pretty cool. You don't even have to say anything. You don't really even have to have it center focus just in that shot where, you know, you see Jason in uh, the co-pilot seat, just have the Calaquaris in there. Yeah. Would have been pretty yeah. cool. That would have been a nice touch. Yeah. But, you know, again, that's like really nitpicking, which is, 
I, I don't want to do that uh, on this episode because I feel like these shows were just so well done. Mm-hmm. All right, so wrapping up with the the most controversial, I guess, of endings, the ending with Sabine and Ahsoka. We've already kind of said, you know, how we feel about Sabine and and staying on Lothal, but just overall, how do you feel about how they they pulled her story together? Um, the fact that they had her kind of telling the story of the clothes and, and things like that. Well, it was a little surprising because the trailer for the fourth season had Hera's voiceover. So honestly, I was expecting, I was expecting the the final voiceover to be Hera. So it was actually, I was pleasantly surprised that it was Sabine. Definitely pleasantly. I mean, full disclosure, as far as Rebels go, you know, of course, Ahsoka is my absolute favorite. Um, But up until now, and I've said it before on these podcasts, too, I always go back and forth with who my favorite character in Rebels is. Is it Hera or is it Sabine? And I think now I'm pretty confident it is Sabine. Um, To see her go from that untrusting, I don't know if this is really where I should be, I'm very self-motivated person, to I'm going to give up everything to try and get this person in my family back, I'm totally okay with. I love it about her. And for her to trust... And I'm trying to think of a good way to put this, but you know, like I said before, she has such issues trusting people. And then we go back to Mandalore and she's able to trust the entire fate of Mandalore onto other people. And now she's able to trust this other family. I think it just says so much about her that she's able to stay on with all, you know, it doesn't take away from her character that she does. I think it gives more to her character that she's able to stay there with that trust and with that patience. When I think it says a lot that she was inspired by Ezra and, and we see that, I mean, she has, the same haircut that he has at the end there. She's standing on his tower looking the exact same way that we saw Ezra at the beginning of season one. Like in Spark of Rebellion, he's leaning in that same spot at that same angle. And, and so, that, yeah. Did you notice the, the shot where she leaves on the bike? She, she's leaving the tower. It's the exact same shot from the first yeah. episode with yeah. Ezra on the bike. Absolutely. So, yeah. And so they're, they're making that illusion for sure. And, you know, for me personally, I'm somebody who, you know, if I have a mentor, so for example, my fifth grade teacher really is who inspired me to eventually become a teacher. Um, And so now teaching fifth grade, like every day, I'm just trying to live up to the model that she gave um, and trying to be half the teacher that she was. And I, I think that's kind of the situation with Sabine and Ezra, like she is trying to not necessarily like live up like he's better than her or anything like that, but kind of like he set this path down for me. He was able to teach me these lessons and following in his steed, hopefully I can teach the next generation these lessons, even though she's going back to look for him and stuff, you know, it just, it opens up that story arc to me. Um, yeah. And, and go ahead. because we don't know, we don't know what she did on Lothal we don't know what her role was there. I mean, she was helping to rebuild the planet. Um, yeah, we need a book or comic same... series on that, something. Yeah, yeah. I'm willing to bet we get it. Okay, so to finish off, you know, we got to save the best for last, Ahsoka. So Ahsoka lives, which is awesome. Post-Return of the Jedi, which is awesome. I don't think I'm going to get any argument on that. And if I do, you're fired. But, no, I'm just kidding. 
But uh, you guys pointed out to me the references to Lord of the Rings. So I'm not really a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Um, I definitely got the uh, the Gandalf the White because she was wearing all white. And I've heard Filoni talk about the, the Lord of the Rings influence. But in terms of like the story uh, aspect of it and not just, you know, the fact that Filoni is a, a huge Lord of the Rings fan. How does that how does that fit together? How's the Ahsoka now Gandalf the White? I mean, I'm uh, going to let Mark take this. Mark, I think you know a little bit more about Lord of the Rings, but I will say that this is me nitpicking. I thought it was way too on the nose. The similarities were so obvious, you know, visually, and just, it took me out of it for a minute. Um, so I would say that's one of the things I almost didn't like about this, but still, as long as we get Ahsoka and as long as she's going to do something super cool now, I'm on board. I'll grant you that it was on the nose the way she was dressed and and the fact that she had a staff, um, which was almost exactly the same as Gandalf's staff. Um, <clears throat> that was pretty on the nose. Um, I'm not really a Lord of the Rings expert, um, so uh, I just have sort of a, you know, I guess a, a mild understanding of, of kind of how, you know, the, the tropes of that story um, play out. But the end. The things that that rang familiar for me at, with the with the final scene was the fact that she was there to escort uh, Sabine onto the ship, which is very much the way the Lord of the Rings ends with um, Gandalf uh, leading Bilbo and Frodo onto the ship at the Great Havens, and they're going to sail into the West towards the White Shores, which is a metaphor for entering the afterlife, and. So that the fact that they get on a ship and fly off was was also very very similar to me. Um, but aside from that, there's really not any other uh, clues that really that I'm aware of that really tie her directly to Gandalf the White, other than the fact that she uh, was sort of in this place that was between worlds and she came back. Um, we we just don't know enough about what she was doing while she was in you know when she was on Malachor. Uh, to, to say at this point whether it was a, a direct parallel to Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah. But I, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I saw on Twitter, somebody did a cartoon, uh, a sketch of, um, it was just a simple sketch showing a much older Ahsoka standing next to Ray, and I just about lost it. Oh, I mean, don't the do idea that to the me, Mark. Oh. <laughs> exactly. The you possibility have to find this and send this to us now. I have to see this. I, I have awesome. to, I, I will send it. Um, and it just, it's opened up so many possibilities. I mean, when I think about the role that Leia was supposed to play in, in episode nine and how they've had to obviously rewrite that role, um, she was supposed to have a much bigger role. And the way The Last Jedi ends, it looks pretty much like they're setting up, you know, having Leia be the mentor for Rey instead of Luke. And so I, you know, I know that it won't happen, but having Ahsoka step into that role, don't, it just would never happen. Don't but toy with I, me. Don't I, toy with I, me. It's not going to happen, but I just would love it so much. I would oh, love it, it so much. Awesome. It would be so cool. <laughs> so one thing I want to note, and like I said, I am, truth be told, I haven't even watched all the Lord of the Ring movies all the way through. I've watched like one and a half of them. But... 
Filoni, I think it was Rebels Recon or one of the interviews that he did um, after the show ended, said that every everything with Ahsoka was intentional. Um, obviously, the look being a link to Gandalf the White, I don't think that's surprising to every, anyone. But like he, he was saying even the angle of her head and the way that the light hits her and things like that are all important to where she's going from here. So that's exciting to me. And if you're one of those people who stared at the tops cards for ages and ages trying to figure out what's going on, here's your replacement. You can just stare at that image of Ahsoka into all eternity until we get more of her. What she has said is going to be a little while. So, I, I, which I think is good. I don't want I don't want to overplay these characters. I think a little bit of separation from these characters in the story and then bringing them back 5 I hate to say even 10 years down the road, but could add a lot to them. Um, you know, separation makes the heart grow fonder. What are our what are our lasting impressions of Rebels? What's the legacy of this story going to be in our fandom, in our lives, and just overall? So, Lindsay, why don't you take this one first? What is the legacy of Rebels for you? I mean, for me, it has a lot of different aspects to look at it. You know, I love the fact that I talk all the time, I have my little nephews, and this is a great way that I've gotten them to start into Star Wars. You know, it's very accessible, they love the animation at first, and then, of course, as they get older, we can re-watch it and see it from totally different angles. So, I love Rebels just because it keeps it in the family, and it's such an easy way to pass it down. But, I mean, for me as a Star Wars fan, it drives home a very different element you know i always say my favorite part of star wars is the aspect of the force but for now to be able to focus on these other people you know because i love sabine and i love hera who aren't necessarily connected to the force but they're still going and fighting this fight and to have these characters that i relate to so heavily for a variety of different reasons that's why you keep going back to Star Wars, because you can see yourself in these characters, even if they're not even human in some cases. So for me, it's just, it's a fun show. It has that rewatchability factor, but more so it 100% drives home the point of Star Wars that this is about family. This is about finding that reason within you that you fight for other people and you keep going. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'd have to echo, echo that. Yeah, the for me, it it really, really does not, um, <clears throat> and especially the the idea of found family, which is there are in our lives that are we're related to, and those those people are special to us, and they mean they mean the world to us, but we don't choose those people. Those those people are are just a you know, they're they're a matter of our our family tree. Um, we had no no decision in, in choosing those people, but people that, that we, that come into our lives that are our friends or our partners, those can be our family members too. And I think that's what this is saying. This is, this story is about this group of people that for various reasons, um, maybe had issues connecting with, with members of their own family, but they all come together and, and have this bond, um, that brings them together and it's, it's set against this incredible um, conflict happening in the universe. Um, but the story is always very focused on these central characters. And I like how 
I'm, I'm a big fan of the Clone Wars, but the Clone Wars was almost an anthology series because it would skip around from character to character and different events and different places. And this felt very focused. There's a beginning, a middle, and now we have an end. And it, it feels very satisfying because it's a complete experience. Um, and yet it, it leaves enough questions unanswered and leaves enough things open to where I want to see where these characters go. Um, but, you know, as I said, if, if some of these characters we never see again, I'll be happy to revisit them again and again when I rewatch this show because I just love the series so much and I love how complete it feels. Yeah, I, I echo everything you guys said. Um, for me, so as an Ahsoka fan, this show is what solidified um, Ahsoka being my favorite character because... I know the show wasn't about Ahsoka, but just getting to see her back and getting to see what she had become after she left the Jedi Temple and the fact that walking away was the right choice um, and, and that it didn't it didn't hurt her. It helped her grow the way that she needed to grow making that hard choice uh, really meant a lot to me personally. As far as the, the show itself goes, though, it's always for me going to be attached to teaching because... Uh, Rebels started the same year that I started teaching, and I, of course, you know, teach using Star Wars, and not really knowing how far I could push the envelope and how much I could get away with, I started out, you know, with reading them Rebels stuff and showing them Rebels episodes, and I remember the 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 moment that my Rebels fandom was completely solidified was the season one finale. Um, I had been getting ready to watch it live. And I fell asleep and I woke up right when the end credits hit. And I was so mad because, you know, I didn't have it on iTunes. This wasn't it wasn't immediately available to me. Like I couldn't go back and watch it. So I went into school the next day and I told all the kids, I'm like, don't tell me anything. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and I watched it that night. And then the next day I went back and um, we watched it all together during a little indoor recess and getting to see the kids react to when Darth Vader walks down the uh the the walkway of his ship uh just it was like to me it was that moment where okay Star Wars really is going to live forever and it just it just opened up something so visceral in me uh that that it's just it's an integral part of my life now on top of that you know like you guys said the story's fantastic the characters are fantastic there's there's depth to them there's complexity to them and their stories the thing that makes star wars stories great is we can go back and revisit them over and over again and find new things at different stages in our life and even as i've rewatched rebels as it's on that's already happened and so i'm excited you know to go back and and like you guys watch it again maybe binge watch it like mark said and see how that experience is uh and see how it changes these characters and opens up the story more but we hope that there is going to be more of these characters in the sooner rather than the later. But if not, you know, we got plenty of Star Wars. We've got Solo coming out. We've got Episode Nine getting ready. Um, Mark has verified that Ahsoka is going to be in Episode Nine, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> um, Heard it here first, folks. Yeah, exactly. That won't backfire at all. <laughs> not, but hey, if it happens though, we're gonna get we're gonna be huge because you know we. That's, this is probably the only place true. you're going to hear it. That's yes. So, uh, Mark, Lindsay, go ahead and give your plugs for your, your Twitter, all your social and all that good stuff. 
Lindsay, you all first. All right. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Miss Lindsay G. That's M S Lindsay J. Uh, follow me for anything Star Wars related or, like I always say, just fun stuff that my mom texts me during the day. Yeah. And you can find me on Twitter and follow me, DJ M Marquis. That's DJ double M A R Q U I S. And you can also find them. I'm going to cheap plug for you guys because you're fantastic. Uh, you can find Lindsay being smarter than I am about books on Don't Burn the Sacred Text. And you can hear Mark being absolutely fantastic and awe-inspiring on Forever Star Wars. Mark, I, don't, I haven't actually had a chance to talk to you personally since that came out. The reaction that I've gotten to that is just outstanding. So... Thank you oh, from the bottom of my heart for coming out with that 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 series. It's been oh, it's been thank great. You. Uh, so definitely follow them. Check out our other episodes. Subscribe to the network. You know we got um, those two podcasts plus Starships ju- just came out with the Iden Versio and Del Mico episode with at Chaos Bria. You definitely want to check that out. Um, Ash and them have a great conversation there. You can follow the network at Clashing Sabers. Email us at Clashing Sabers Network at Gmail You can follow me at Darth Boylan. Or you can follow Drew Brett at the Drew Brett on Twitter. And until next time, remember, if you hug a purgle, you're going places. The podcast you just listened to and all other Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of ClashingSabers.net. All sounds and materials used from other creators is their stuff, and we just use information on educational purposes. Bottom line, we made it, it's ours, they made it, it's theirs. Seems simple, but if you're still confused, feel free to email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. We have no association with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of the other fine companies that make all this stuff we talk about. But, Kathleen Kennedy, if you need anything, let me know. I work for cheap. Now let's blow this thing and get out of here.